Welcome to the next episode of The Work. The Work is a podcast where we have interesting guests with whom we have interesting conversations. Uh, It's not a product pitch. It's not a marketing slick. And my co-host is John Sumser. I'm Gina Kelly. And today's guest is Kat Kibben. Kat, I would love to have you introduce yourself, please. Let me turn the floor over to you. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me to hang out with two friends this afternoon. So my name is Kat or Katrina Kibben. I'm the only one in the world. So if you spell my name right, you can find out all of my technical bio and background details. But what I'm probably uh, most known for now is writing. I've been a writer for as a managing editor, a marketer in the HR tech space. And today I am the job post expert in our industry. What does job post expert mean? I mean, I've written more than anyone else (laughs) Uh, with my company, Three Years Media. Very cool. Very cool. Who hires you, Kat? Who, who, you know, for whom are you doing this? Everyone. It has surprised me just how in demand job postings are because everyone is hiring and it's one of the only variables we can control. So I've worked with everyone from your fortune 100s to literally the mom and pop shop that's hiring someone to sit at the front desk for the first time at your hair salon. Oh man, I'll tell you. And this is a category that's changed so tremendously. You know, um, for our listeners, you probably are sitting there going, well, a job post is short and that must be easy to write. And I can tell you as a as an employer, I have struggled, really struggled, and sometimes over-architected and sometimes wondered why the candidate never matched the the, the role we were hiring for. Like, like, what's the science behind it, Kat? Honestly, I think the science is listening, and it's the one that we missed for a long time because there's such a large data set when it comes to job postings. You can Google any job title and find an average job posting, but what we did not learn how to distill easily is the truth. What you actually do every day, the impact of our work, and the hardest one, which is the actual mandatory requirements, the requirements that you must have in order to effectively do the job. And so I don't know that I'm the best job post writer in the world, but I do know that I'm the best at the hiring manager intake. And that's where all of that intel happens. That's where the trust begins. And we actually get the truth. So we don't end up in the place that you just described, where we did all of this work, went through an entire hiring process, and all of a sudden we're staring at the wrong person. Wow. So you have to put the hiring manager on the spot and get them to really look in a mirror. Uh, and, and you know, I don't know that they have that self-awareness in terms of who they're looking for. So th- there, there is so much coaching and counseling that's going on behind the scenes before you're putting pen to paper, per se. 100%. It's about distilling the experiences of that moment. And the hiring manager is really the only source of truth when it comes to understanding the experiences that would qualify someone or the experiences they'll have every day. Because truth is, right, we're recruiters. We have not done every single job we hire for. And I actually think that candidates have this false perception that we know everything about their job. So clearly, you know, we've written this great job posting because we're such experts on the work and we know exactly what we're looking for. And the entire equation is busted. 
You know, I, I remember, oh gosh, I, I think it was you who told me a story about you were presenting to a group of students and you had to dispel the myth that um, job titles aren't real, <laughs> that, that they're kind of, kind of concocted, whatever. Uh, tell us, Tell us about that. Yeah. So a few weeks ago, I spoke, I was a keynote for the Hispanic student group. And it's basically a, they're called HSI. And it's a group of colleges with the largest percentage of Hispanic students. And they've created education and support to help these students figure out their next steps of their career so that they end college and walk into a job. I love it. And so they asked me to come and speak. And I did the topic of how to read between the lines of a job description and get hired. And I realized that the tip, the one tip I was like, if you don't listen to anything else I say, I need you to hear this one because I have spent a lot of time in therapy, drinking, being very, very angry over this topic. And the topic is the job title. I have chased job titles. I have yearned for them. I have put blood, sweat, and tears on words on a piece of paper. And at no point did I understand the value to me or the value to anyone else. And then I said what you just told him, and I'm going to tell everyone who's listening to this, I'm going to change your life right now. All job titles are completely made up and you should chase great ideas and great teams and great work, not job titles. I, I Well, John, what are some of the quirkiest job titles you've ever had? Oh, man, I was a door-to-door Santa Claus. Uh, was it? <laughs> Is that still on your resume or LinkedIn profile? Uh, no, no, no. That was that was when you when you have a philosophy degree and you, and you um, uh, start working in a recession. That's what you do. That's what you do. And and by the way, that was door to door Santa Claus for Polaroid uh, when Polaroid released their instant movie, which was an eight millimeter movie that you took and then dunked in some liquid to get an instant movie. And Polaroid had invested billions of $1978 in making this thing the year that the Betamax came out. Oh. Um, <laughs> so that, that you'll love this. So, so um, they hired a bunch of Santa Clauses because Polaroid's deal that Christmas was you buy one of these cameras and Santa will come to your house for a four-hour party. Wow. And, and the 20 Santa Clauses who were the door-to-door Santa Clauses for Polaroid sat around in this office together waiting for the phone to ring. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just sad. That was a short-lived career for you, John. <laughs> it was a very short-lived career for me, but but it was my introduction to um, the power of the right idea at the right time and the wrong idea at the wrong time. Yeah, yeah. It's <sighs> it's. it's I'm, I'm so with you guys on this because I remember having. I won't mention the brand because it's an HR tech brand, but I remember having a really awful job title. At uh, with a really big job at one of the HR brands where I was in, in charge of uh, of uh, product management, but my mar- my title was something like marketing programs consultant or some some bogus title. So yeah, as we and 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 Kat, I imagine you're a military brat, if I recall. So so 
this 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 isn't just, you know, among the three of us. I mean, I, I think that, you know, when people are leaving the military and coming into um, the, the, you know, the for-profit workforce, how do those titles tra- traverse? How does that work? Right. They're coming from a really structured environment where everything is this, then this, then this, the rules that they use to survive, the rules they use to thrive. And then they come out into corporate America where nothing makes sense. For me, it was the experience of going to your parents and asking for advice like most people do when they're looking for a job and having my parents be very point blank about things. Well, no, you get a manager job and then you get a director job because you were a lieutenant and then you were a this and then you were a that. And that's just how it works. And you always make more money, right? That was the, one of the yes. other rules that I had to learn how to break was this idea that if you take the next job, it has to be more money. It has to be this. And that just wasn't my experience because like John, I also entered the market during a very large recession, uh, but it was the dot-com bubble. And I was two years into my job at a startup and right idea, right time too. That one hit me right in the back of the head when you said that, because I realized, you know, my, I worked at a company that it was called visual CV and it was basically LinkedIn without the networking oh, component. Wow. We had everything that yeah. LinkedIn has yeah. except for the connections between people. And it was missing. If it had had that one dimension could have changed my life. Right. Instead, I ended up a social media ninja with monster.com <laughs> traveling oh, the country, oh. attending job fairs. That's that, what I did for that, four years. That ninja title is just nails on a chalkboard for me. Ooh. Yeah, you needed a Santa Claus suit to do that job, right? <laughs> I mean, that or at least a ninja costume. I always tell people, I'm like, you know, by the age of eight, we know that we're not going to grow up to be ninjas. So this probably (laughs) is not the best job title. Just throwing that out there. Oh, man. So so you've looked at a ton of jobs. What what are you learning now that you have looked and looked and looked at all this stuff? What's the, what's, what's, there's got to be something that's deeper than one job posting after another. Absolutely. You know, I think broadly, we have not done a great job of understanding mandatory requirements. I would say that's the one thing that no matter the team, no matter how big the company, no matter the level of the job, that most people do not have a good grasp of the mandatory minimum qualifications that you must have in order to get a job. And the reason I believe that is, is so much greater than we know. I believe it's actually buried in biases that have just been part of our workforce for hundreds of years. And now they're becoming part of our reality simply because we've multiplied our tactic without ever understanding why we did it in the first place. And there's a lot of roots to our tactics that we don't talk about. Let me give an example. Years of experience, right? Whenever I talk about years of experience, people are like, oh, no, we have to use those, right? How could we possibly tell the difference between a manager and a junior person? And I say, okay, let me try. I'm going to, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, and I have both, we've both been CEOs for three years. We both lead teams in brand new markets, right? I created a market. Mm-hmm, sure. Um, fully techno- tech savvy teams. Um, we both lead, have global inputs. Would you put Jeff Bezos and I on the same slate? And people laugh at me and they're like, no. And I was like, then stop using years of experience because we have the same. Mm-hmm. It, it quantifies time, but it qualifies no one. And if you go deeper, right, college degrees, you want to know when college degrees started started showing up? 
when people of color were allowed to go to college. Right. There are deep biases built into these jobs that are Mm -hmm. keeping great people out. And we have never looked into our tactics for minimum qualifications to understand why that might be impacting how diverse our workforce is. So I want to bring up something else that I know um, you're passionate about and also quite expert in, and that's pronouns in the workplace. Talk to that. You know, I, whenever I'm thinking about this subject. The first thing I always want to say is I'm not a pronoun expert. I'm not a DEI (laughs) expert. I live my life every day in the context of work. And I have the great benefit of just being able to peek in and then back out. But most people don't have that benefit, right? Most people don't get to experience work in that way where they can see something wrong, help fix it, and then leave and leave the problem behind. And that's why I started talking about this is not... I'll be honest, I don't know that I ever wanted to be out at work. I wanted to be great at my job. I wanted to be an incredible writer. I wanted to be the best at job postings. I wanted to create impact on people. And what I've realized is that no matter how much work I do at being the best, I feel a little emotional talking about this. No matter how much work I do at being the best, I can't thrive. Others cannot thrive if we don't live in a space where we can live out loud, where we feel like we're constantly picking filters to show other people of our life to make sure that they don't know who we are because we think there's something bad hiding behind that door. And so over the last year, I've been looking at ways that we can bring pronouns and belonging to the workplace, both through corporate education, through even executive coaching, through coaching talent teams, so that we can at least create a baseline of information. Because I fundamentally believe that if we change companies, we change communities because these people do not exist solely within the walls of your organization or the digital walls. So they may be, they exist as parents, family, friends. They can be allies outside of those walls. And if we make them better at work, we make them better to the people they love. And that's why I started talking about the subject and why I've I've really tried to research, understand, and bring knowledge that I think can bring everyone at least to a mutual point of understanding that this is about safety. Yes. This is not mm-hmm. something special that we're doing. This is about making people feel safe so they can thrive. I think psychological safety in the workplace is a huge topic. John, your thoughts on that? I wonder. I've been I've been thinking a lot recently about whether or not there are really, really different ways that generations think about this issue and think about um, what constitutes safety in the workplace. So I know I know that that. My generation, which I will characterize in spite of the fact that Gene might be much younger. Oh, I, actually, actually, I was. Gonna... <laughs> Sorry, and... I had to jump in there. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, you know what? I'm never going. I'm never going to get this right. Um, what constitutes safety varies. What constitutes safety is not a collective answer. What constitutes safety is an individual answer. And 
what constitutes safety between generations is varied as well. And so, so I come from a generation where safety meant bracing and safety meant command and control. And we're entering an era where the very essence of management is vulnerability. And empathy. The very essence mm-hmm. is vulnerability and empathy. Yeah. And I haven't got the slightest idea what to do in that world. We haven't you been know, trained all... in that. We haven't been trained in that. We we were trained in workplace safety was, you know, number of days since an accident. Remember the signs in the, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, workplace yeah. safety was safety goggles. Right. It was hiding things. It was not right. opening, uh, opening things. It was, right. it was keeping them in the closet. That's what was safe as I was coming up. And now that definition is changing. But I think you'll I think you'll find that the generational embrace of the ideas is 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 almost polar in its op- in its opposite. So so it may not be um, safe for somebody in my demographic to express their pronoun. It just may not be safe emotionally and and psychologically. Where it's the ideal thing to do if you are. Um, in a different age group, and so so I don't know how you how you make safety work when there's that kind of variation in the understanding about it. Except or, except to go well, the real power of the workforce is not in its elders, right? And and so you have to make decisions that favor young people. Um, yeah. Uh, regardless of their consequence to the elders, I think. I have two thoughts on that. My first thought is when we blurred the line of work and home, we blurred the line of safety. Because when I put on my boots and my gloves and I went to that place and I did the work and then I left, safety was my responsibility at my house. And safety was their responsibility when I was at work. And that clear line, that distinguish of like, I do this here and I do this here, allowed for safety to be two different things. And we've moved into an era. So I don't remember military parents, right? I don't remember my mom bringing homework. She didn't bring homework. Mm -hmm. She worked very long days, right? But she did not bring it home. Work did not hit our desk until I was much older and she was taking classes and doing other things. I I think that when we blurred that line of, you know, our home is our work, is our community, is our, and all of that. And then we started asking people for referrals and it started to be our broad community. I think that's where we had to ask different questions about safety. And I, and that to me is the one thing that all of us can bond on. And the way that I present it when I talk about safety is about the first person who ever made you feel safe. And I believe that this is universal for any generation, you know, this person. So, so I ask everyone, I want you to think of the first person who ever made you feel safe. Just think of them. And then I walk them through and I tell them about the first person that ever made me feel safe. He was a military police officer from the hills of Tennessee. Okay. Not who you're picturing when I'm talking about allyship or anything gay. I promise you, he is the opposite. Kind of reminds me of a clampet, but that's a different story. And so, you know, I describe it. And then I say, 
He was not a picture of an ally. He was not a generational rainbow award winning parent. But you know what he did? He made me feel safe. And that is something we all know that is real to all of us. And we can have it at work. And when we talk about it from that premise, this is not about pronouns. This is not about honesty. It's not about coming out. It's about making people feel safe. We start there. I am having different conversations than I've ever had before. Is it is it is acceptance part of safety or safety part of acceptance? How 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 do they intertwine? That's one of those questions I'll be thinking about, and you'll randomly get yeah. an email from me in the middle of the night. But I'll be like, I was thinking about this. Yeah, so. it, it's you know, it's it just um, when you were just talking about that, I was like, you know. Uh, because I was thinking about my own grandmother, who was just very accepting of me. Like, I never felt I had to tap dance, you know, either around a topic or to get her attention. Or It was like you could just be, you know, it's that, right. that ultimate state. Um, and I think you feel safe with people who you feel accept you. Um so I, it's, it, that's probably another another whole other podcast episode. We'll have to come back to that. I, I, Kat, you talk about signals. Um, I, I love this because it's very subtle, but it's very it's very strong. So so mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about signals, John. John, I know you weren't part of this this earlier conversation about signals. So so um, please jump in. Um. So I've been thinking a lot about subtle cues, right? The subtle cues that tell you if you belong or you don't. And the first time I ever thought about subtle cues was a really beautiful moment. I was talking to a mom of a non-binary kid and she saw the non-binary flag in my background. And she said, oh, is, is that the, what pride flag is that? And I shared and she's like, I didn't know those existed. I really want to get one for my kiddo. And she got teary with me. And I was like, you know, uh, I, I can send you a flag, you know, like I, I'm trying to help. And, and she says to me, no, it's not about that. It's about the idea that my kid could be a CEO like you. And she had never dreamt that because when we have kids, I don't have kids, but I I know this to be true, that when you have kids, they come with dreams. You instantly have a whole list of dreams for them. The second that they like squeal into the world, you're like, I want this for them. I want this for them. I want this for them. And when something happens that disrupts that dream, or at least your vision of who they will become, it's hard for parents. I don't care if you thought your kid was going to grow up to be an Olympic swimmer and they turn out not like to not like swimming or something that can influence a lot of the dimensions of dreams that you had when they go, I'm gay or I'm trans. And suddenly your little girl is a boy. And those moments, parents give off subtle cues, but the thing that happens and the thing that builds up over time for trans people is when we get subtle cues of belonging or more often than not, the signs that we do not belong. And over the weekend, and something that I'm trying to bring up more as I'm experiencing van life is to share the moments when I know I do not belong because people think it doesn't happen. Truly, you know, it's walking into that bar and you get the look. It's kind of like the the soundtrack stops, the music stops, the chatter in the room stops. And as someone who is raised as a straight white female with long curly hair in a very Southern family, I know how those bars work. And I've been there when they didn't stare at me that way. So I knew what was happening. 
subtle cues are the things we do not talk about enough in America. Mm -hmm. Because if we want to change that safety conversation, the psychological safety that we just talked about, if we actually want to influence that, the subtle cues are where it starts. It and it magnifies and multiplies for people of color. It is life altering and life ending. These subtle cues can be for people. And it's a matter of safety. And if we're not even talking about it at work, we surely cannot talk about it in our community when people feel it. How do you take that message to uh, sort of my demographics, uh, my demographic group where the very essence of privilege is that I don't have to worry about subtle cues. That's the very, very nature of the world that I live in is, I was, I was telling Gene earlier that I got mugged in New York City uh, when, I was, when I was very young because New York City was a tougher place. So I was giving off cues that, that I, was a, I was a mark. He was looking, general... looking up at the skyscrapers. So yeah, that's, <laughs> so you never um, do that in New York City. <laughs> Generally speaking, I go anywhere I want to go, and I don't really have to pay attention to the consequences of the signals that I give off. And that tends to mean that I don't have to read the signals that are being given off. Yeah. Um, and so now you've got this job of persuading me that to pay attention to signals. Um, how do you do that? Yeah, you know, I think it's a lot of storytelling and often... I have to sacrifice a little bit of my sanity on these. And this is why I can't do it all the time because I share these moments that are very real. But I think this is the other part that is often missing for the generation is telling them what to do next. Right. We have these big moments. Maybe you're watching TV or you see the subtle cue. And I know you'll notice because it's part of the dramatic effect, but no one tells you what to do now. No one tells you how to stand up. No one tells you what to say. And often I think that that's what that generation is missing. Not a lack of awareness, but a lack of action because they were raised in a, in an area where you stood up for your neighbor and you helped and you did the thing. And they want to do the thing deep down, but they're too scared to do it wrong. And so I think there's two pieces. Number one, I give a lot of permission to do things wrong. And I'll say it over and over again, that perfection is not the goal. I want attention. I want energy to be applied, but I do not need perfection. And the other side of it is every time I tell a story, I tell them what I wish someone would have done. And I think having that makes a difference. Oh. So I hear you, but, but, you know, as hard as I try, hard as I try. The other day, I, I have a great friend who is a single black mom, and um, she introduced me to her daughter. And, and when, when Amala got off the phone, uh, off the Zoom call, I said, she's gorgeous. And my friend said, you think she can't do math? Um, right. She, she did not. Want, she did not want. It doesn't have to be, to be one or the other, though. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but she has. She's very, yeah. very aware yeah. of. I that understand this as signal. a mother, by the way. Yeah, I understand this. Yeah. She, she, very, very aware of that particular signal, and so, so I find myself um, encountering. Um, the errors in my assumption on a routine basis 
um, and am surprised by them. I'm, I'm routinely surprised by them. And I would have guessed that I would have figured some of this crap out by now. But but um, Gene will Gene will upbraid me for something fairly fairly routinely. Um, so so how do you how do you do that? Because while perfection isn't the goal, um, there are no bits of applause for getting this right. There's only noticing when it's wrong, and that's a hard way to learn. Well, you know, if you pay enough therapists, they'll tell you this one too. So free free therapy, what we call trickle-down therapy, my friends and I, um, is if you can notice a pattern, you can change it, right? And so I, I truly do believe that if you never noticed the pattern, that is when I can't help, right? When you're like, I've never done that. And I'm like, okay, let's walk out here. What do you see? And they're like, I see her. And I'm like, did you ask her? Did you ask her what her, what their pronouns are? Because you don't know until you ask, right? I think it's also just being in an environment where you do ask questions because again, if you notice the pattern, you can change. But when do you give up? So, so what I mean by, and this goes back to safety, seriously, because, you know, I'm listening to John talk about, you know, you're categorizing it as privilege, John, and and some of it, uh, you know, I share. So I'm I'm not going to pretend that I'm I'm not part of that. But you're a big white guy. You can walk into a lot of places. I'm five foot one. Like I know when I don't belong someplace. I I can tell you when I feel unsafe physically. When it is time for me to fold up and leave. And and Kat, there have to be instances where you say, you know what, I'm not going to die on this hill. This isn't worth it here. So so what what does that look like? Yeah, you know I think living in my van, I have to listen to my instincts more mm-hmm. often than not. And if I feel some kind of like spidey sense of yeah. I'm not safe, I leave. Mm-hmm. Period. I'm, I'm not allowed to second guess that mm-hmm. because of the nature of my life, right? I have to be safe. I have to be healthy. And I'm also in a lot of areas I've never been before. Mm-hmm. I see more areas I have not been to before than a lot of people do in very short periods of time. I think, so I've had to make this, and I'm, I'm talking about the quitting of a relationship too, and the quitting of a workplace at a more broad level. It's not just about like, when do you, because I've had to have this conversation with family. I've had to have this conversation at work. And I think that when you see people actively creating policy or actively sharing information that is against yours, you, who you mm-hmm. be, who mm-hmm. you identify, right? I think that's when you need to start reconsidering your relationship with them. Um, this is hitting a little bit of a soft spot right now because I have a client whose child is currently working at a camp. And I can't mention a lot of details because it has hit the headlines now, but the long and short of it is they have non-binary people working at the camp. It's a five-day camp and two things happened. Number one, um, they 
offered everyone name tags and let them write their pronouns on it. And people wrote their non-binary pronouns. And they said that people were not attending camp because they allowed them to write their pronouns on a name tag. Oh, sad. So yeah. that's, that's a policy sad. issue. Yeah. A policy has been made that is unnecessary against who you be, but this is where things got a little more messy. The camp happened, right? It ended. The kids went home. A non-binary person was bunked with girls, people who identified as mm -hmm. girls. And the non-binary person was born with a penis. Mm -hmm. Now the parents are throwing a fit over the safety of those children in the bunk, even though this is done. It, the event is done. Nothing happened. They were safe the whole time, but now they're questioning it simply because of someone's identity. And the company is not standing behind their employees. The company is standing behind the parents and standing behind the shield of, you know, trans people shouldn't be in the room with people who don't have the same parts as them, whatever. Crazy. That's when you need to walk away from Crazy that organization. Yeah, exactly. You need to walk away from the relationship. Exactly. Hey guys, we're we're almost at time here. So, um, John, did you want to add to to what Kat was just sharing? I think she did a perfectly wonderful job there. Um, that is a perfectly wonderful job. And so, so I'll leave it and go head out to California so I can ride around in your van with you. Would you? Yeah, Cat, Cat, we are living vicariously through you since John and I would probably last about two hours in a van before we'd be looking for a five-star hotel someplace. <laughs> but oh, oh, you mean you mean vans don't have room service? I'm sorry, no room service, unreliable no Wi-Fi. Either. <laughs> I didn't think about that, but I should have. No Uber delivery eats. to the no van. Delivery, yeah. no Uber Eats can't oh. find you. No yeah. address, no delivery. <laughs> um, Kat, we always learn from you, and we know our listeners are learning from you as well. How can people get in touch with you, please? Yeah. So like I said, I'm the only Katrina Kivin in the world. So if you spell my name right, you'll find me. Uh, but you can also go over to threeearsmedia.com. It's named after two dogs with four ears. And that's the company where we write job postings and where you can always find everything that I'm working on. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Cap. <laughs> 